From KALW and PRX, I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point, stories of how women rise up. In order to really understand someone, they say you have to walk a mile in their shoes. I received an invitation from Doctors Without Borders to do just that. Also known as Medicine Sans Frontieres, or MSF, they provide humanitarian aid to refugees who've literally sacrificed everything in their lives to flee the only home they've ever known. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller with stories of how women rise up. These families leave everything behind, including loved ones, with no idea of what lies ahead. MSF created an immersive experience to help people like you and me imagine the life of a refugee, from the moment they leave home to the time they make it, if they make it, to a border crossing or refugee camp. It's called, fittingly, Forced From Home. I pulled into the outdoor gray parking lot of the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center at Lake Merritt by the highway in Oakland, California, where they'd set up their exhibit. My tour group includes, among others, a teacher with some high school-age students, a woman who worked in humanitarian aid herself, and one who'd volunteered for a refugee organization. Our guide is Christina Pissara, one of the heads of mission for Doctors Without Borders. Just imagine you're running from the only home you've ever known. Literally running. Our group has 60 seconds to choose five items to take with us on our journey. Water, pa- I chose water, passport, phone, shoes, and money. Next, we head to a rubber boat that fits maybe 15 people safely. We're told to give up one of our five items. Oh my God. How are you deciding what to leave behind? What I thought wasn't as important as what I had. What did you leave behind? Photos. Photos. What did you leave behind? Clothes. Clothes. No clothes. What are you going to leave behind? I don't give up my guitar at all. You didn't give up your guitar. I don't want to I feel like all five of my items are essential. Yeah. Well, maybe they don't care where I came from. I'm going to give up my passport. Yikes. At every stop on my virtual refugee experience, I'm told to give up another one of my five items. Until, at the end, I have nothing. Christina tells us that sometimes people have to leave behind family members. Once on board, Christina holds up two life vests, and we're told that one is real and one is fake, and that were this an actual boat, the life vests we each received were most likely fake. Also, this boat for 15 would eventually carry up to 60, including men, women, and children who can't swim. So... That's the right way for a man to sit in these boats. They would sit exactly like this. They would have one leg inside so that they can make more space for women and children. I'm on dry land. This is not real, but my heart is actually racing. Once we're off the boat, we're led to an area with barbed wire which instead of generating relief for arriving at our destination, it feels more like a prison. We learn that in some countries, when women are without husbands, they and their children are considered without citizenship, meaning they're a non-person. They can't work, 
They can't get papers, making their future even more uncertain. The journey goes on. We're taken through a market where those of us who still have money can buy a mango or charge our cell phones if we still have one. We walk through a tent camp with children's dolls made of plastic bags and cars made from milk jugs and bug spray cartons. And finally, to the MSF aid station, where MSF workers are stationed for months at a time to help refugees with nutrition, malaria, cholera, and even childbirth. In some places, hundreds or even thousands of people are processed every single day. It's an enormous undertaking. Our guide, Christina Passara, grew up in Greece, and she's given her entire life over to this mission, this unending mission, to provide aid to refugees. Her first mission, in fact, was on a small island in her home country called Lesbos. This is a 24-7 job. Every day, she sees hundreds, sometimes thousands of people arrive on shore. With MSF, my first mission was in um, the Greek island of Lesbos. That's an island very close to the Turkish coast where most of the refugees' arrivals were taking place in 2015-2016. I think one million crossed uh, in that year in Greece, one million refugees crossed, and uh, the vast majority of them crossed through uh, Lesbos. So the first mission was there was a mission, an emergency mission. We were running 24 hours. Uh, we were having boats in the water all day long and all night. We were conducting rescues, and um, we had days that we were having thousands of people arriving in the, in the Greek source. So we would uh, start from a very, very small, lovely port in one of the north parts of Lesbos, Around 5 o'clock in the morning, we would take our suits and get out. On the boat, we would always have uh, the on-site coordinator, who is something, let's say, like the captain of this small boat, a cultural mediator, one or two, depending on the days. If it was very busy, we would have one speaking Arabic, one speaking Dari, Farsi, for the Afghan people, a nurse or a doctor, most of the times nurses, because a doctor wouldn't be able to do anything more than first aid on on that. And another person trained in basic uh, skills. Um, So that would be five, a maximum of five in its one, maximum. It was freezing cold. I was so afraid that uh, we would have a rescue, as we did, of course. We were having everyday rescues. But I was afraid, I was very afraid because uh, I didn't know what would happen, if it would be a good rescue, if we would already have people on the water, how it would be. And um, once we saw the first refugee boat, the way we work is that the cultural mediator steps in front and starts saying loudly who we are, identify uh, ourselves and make sure that refugees remain calm because they don't know our intentions. So they get afraid, they get panicked, and they might start jumping out. We towed some boats out. 
that once the mediator goes and says who we are, most of the people, what would do would uh, be to take the children or the babies, place them above their heads, start shouting that they have kids and asking us to take them on our boats because they felt it was safer to bring them out. So we did get a few kids. We had uh, five or six um, toddlers. And um, once they saw us and uh, we said, we are doctors, don't worry, worry, we are here to help you. They, they started giving us thumbs up, making the peace sign, uh, smiling, and uh, took the kids out. And then when we went back uh, in the hotel, I had so much energy. Couldn't sleep. I was super, uh, as if I had energy for the last of the month. Because, you know, it was a very, very good day for us. Everyone was safe. I was super happy. <laughs> I was just super happy that everything mm. went well. I made it. I did my part. I didn't freak out. I was okay on the boat. And um, I'm very proud we were there. And I'm very, very happy I was there with MSF. I don't believe that I could be anywhere else at that time. And do you ever have a chance to stop and talk with any of the people who are arriving or any of these kids to get a sense of their stories? In my next mission in Athens, where we worked in refugee camps, um, there we had the chance to sit with them, um, have lunch, dinner, discuss, learn about their stories. Sometimes uh, they would move on and they would send us news. In many cases, where I learned the most uh, was working with these people uh, because some of them remained with MSF and got a job with the organization as cultural mediators. Uh, these are the people who don't only work as translators, but they also may have experienced the same journey. They know the culture and they work with all the MSF teams as equal members. So working daily with them made me a better person, but also made me see parts of the journey that I wouldn't be able to see because I just had the time to discuss with them over and over again and just get a glimpse in, in places that you wouldn't expect to. So I was working with a cultural mediator and all of a sudden I get to know that this man comes from Syria and his wife is already in Denmark with her child and uh, he's stuck in Greece waiting for family reunification and he tells me how he did the, the journey or women cultural mediators and uh, that's where I learned the most. What's what's a particular story that stands out for you in, in one of those conversations? Um, one was with um, a woman cultural mediator, one of the bravest, toughest women I've ever seen in my life. She uh, was from Iraq, doctor, head of her department, head of an emergency department there, divorced. She had uh, three kids. Uh, at some point, you know, that these women, she was, I, I'll say it again, she's uh, an example of 
of how you can be brave and how there's nothing in the world that uh, can stand on your way. So she was there. At some point, she decides that she has to go all alone. She takes her three kids, and she was coming from the upper class. Uh, she was a doctor, had, she had money, she was coming from a wealthy family. She takes your children, makes the journey, reaches Greece, starts working as cultural mediator with MSF. I got to know her in the office because I was always seeing her coming dressed very well, always with her makeup, very, very beautiful. And I started talking with her and when she told me her story, I was like, wow, how's that? And um, she turns to me and says, I'm not going to be afraid of anything. I took my uh, my kids and got them in a boat and I knew that they cannot swim. So there is nothing I'm going to ever be afraid in my life again. And that was the moment that I said, okay, that's so true. Because for her, she could bear it. She could say, okay, I don't know how to swim. If I die, I die. But imagine a mother having her kids knowing that. Now she got resettled in France, where she's there, um, and she sends me photos on Facebook of her garden and her apartment, and um, she started uh, learning French, and she goes to school, and she tries to find a work, and the, the hardest is, I don't know if she will be able to work as a doctor, with MSF, she felt okay because she felt she was fulfilling a role and she was helping other refugees and she was very deep into that still. But she's a woman with amazing skills and she's a woman that could fit anywhere and do anything. She's a leader yeah. in a sense. And she gave up, she gave up everything. Everything. And everything. Risked, and risked her life and her kids' lives. And I, all three kids made it. They, they all exactly. made it. Yeah. I'm Lauren Schiller. This is Inflection Point. I'm talking with Christina Pissara, a humanitarian field worker and head of mission for Doctors Without Borders. So do you feel like having the opportunity to start again is is there hope in in all of this? I mean, these millions of people making these migrations, you know, leaving everything they know behind and and coming into these new situations where sometimes the country is hospitable and sometimes it is not. You know, and there you you're there and your team is there and you're trying to help them with that transition, but then after that mm-hmm. how does how does she start again? I don't know. I just knew they they do it and uh Yes, if I if I if there is to say, um, if it is to answer the question whether there is hope or not, I think there is hope, and um, I'm amazed to see uh, how far they can go and how many things they can achieve with so little. So, giving them just a shelter or a minimum place where they can feel safe, they will thrive in some cases. And um, you see societies welcoming people on the move, displaced populations. And um, 
after a couple of weeks or or months or even years, they become one. And you see that being, a, I don't want to, to sound emotional. I want to say that it can happen and it doesn't need a lot of things. It doesn't take a lot of effort. You will see integration happening in places, in, in small villages. Um, cities, villages in the north part of Italy have, it's been the mayors and the municipalities requesting refugees to come and settle in these places so that they can boost the economy and make these societies grow again as their local populations have left these sites. Or tiny Greek islands like um, Tilos, that's a very, very small island where tourists tend to go in August and uh, they take the ferry from Piraeus and it takes 24 hours to, to reach the island. So it has a few hundreds of inhabitants, only one school. And um, at some point, they started experiencing arrivals and the whole local society, the, lo- the local community welcomed them. There was no infrastructure, of course, for these people. So they were taking them, uh, trying to find ways to accommodate them. They opened the church, they opened the school. Then after a while, some NGOs went down and they made a small reception site. And the society said, let's see if uh, we can keep some of them here. Let's keep some of them here to stay because we need people in these places. We need them. Uh, kind in, uh, in in summer we need hands because we are not that many to cover the needs for the that come with the tourists and some of them stayed and you have a, a Syrian baker an Iranian woman who works in the hotels and they have become part of the society and it's a, it's a mutual benefit so they they find a place where they stay and you gain from their experience because having survived these things, I'm sure you can do many more. How do you think about this work for you? What is what is it for you that keeps you c- coming back? And I think I'm addicted. I think it's what keeps you coming back is that you know that you can do something that will have an impact in someone else's life, a good impact. So you see that you are covering a need and you feel it and you know it. And um, I don't believe you have to to travel very far or be someone who makes a difference in someone else's life. But with this work, you just get to see uh, your mind sometimes works on a, on a different level. So it's a different mindset that you that you have in in some cases that keeps you drags you back so you want to do that all the time i think even when i'm back home i always try to find something related to do so i'm gonna take holidays and then it's gonna be a month of holidays and one week i'm gonna spend it in an island volunteering somewhere because i know i can do it and i know that it has an impact. Is burnout an issue for you? It is. Of course it is. And uh, and thankfully, the, the last couple of years, we are paying more and more attention on that. And we are trying to improve 
the ways we are taking care of humanitarian workers and ending doctors without borders. We have improved ourselves on that. We have um, support mental health teams that all field workers can access anytime they want. We also have a very good system of briefings and debriefings before, during, and after the missions. It's always very important to share your stories and um, to be honest, most of the times when where you find comfort and you kind of manage this burnout situation is also when you speak with colleagues and people who have experienced the same. Because when you go back and you're with your friends or your family, you don't want to discuss sad things. You want to leave, leave it behind, see the bright side of life and uh, don't discuss these things. Or sometimes you might even think that they're not going to get the full picture of what you are saying. So that's why it's very important to have uh, to be associated with people who have experienced the same like you so that you can share that. So for, for other women who want to do what you do, how, how do you get there? I mean, you had your own path. You went to the London School of Economics. Did you feel that that prepared you for this work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. So is that what is that what you recommend? Go to school? <laughs> well, I would I always recommend to take breaks. First of all, studies never end and never think that it's too late to learn something new. So it doesn't mean that you finished college and that's, that's the end of your studies. There's always things to learn along your way and improve your skills and keep updated and become better. So it's always a combination of educational and professional background who we are. Our careers are not only jobs and going from one step to the other and one position to the other. It also needs you reflect back. Also, what's very important, and if I could give a piece of advice, would be not to be intimidated, not to feel that they cannot make it, ignore the obstacles, because it will happen. It will happen to be on a panel with two other women and one man or five women and two men and you will ask a question and then the answer will be directed to the men sitting next to you. You're going to see that. I, I, I've experienced that so I hate when that happens. So much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it happens a lot. That needs to lot. end. Absolutely. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yes, build their, uh, build their confidence because when you build your skills and you have the educational or professional background, you feel more confident to to stick to who you are and what you say and move on. And there's going to be a lot of disappointment, but um, just don't be afraid. So do you get training to go on, on these search and rescue missions? Yeah. And what is that? Can you describe that training? We get a lot of trainings, a lot of different trainings. Um, in MSF, in every operational center, there is a big training unit. So no one in MSF lives without a training for a mission. And that's part of our efforts to take care of the people and avoid burnout and avoid 
difficult situations in the field. So it's very important. What's the best advice that you've ever been given um, about keeping your cool when you're in charge of so many moving parts? Someone told me that uh, because I was um, I was on a mission and uh, I didn't keep my cool. Someone told me people have to like you to work with you. So make sure that people like you. And and good missions are made by good people and good teams. So if you have a good team, you're going to have a good mission and things will work out. I can be very demanding. <laughs> and um, and sometimes it's that uh, feeling that you have that uh, everything is excused uh just to do the right thing and um, you forget that the people working there also have needs and you have to take care of them too. If you get angry with someone who didn't do its part, it's absolutely okay because that happens anywhere. It's absolutely okay to forget the keys of the car and be late a couple of minutes or it's absolutely okay to forget send an email when you're performing rescue operations I mean come on and um, or in in some cases I wanted to speak out for some incidents that we first had to manage internally and be prepared on the way that we would communicate them so not to risk uh, our operations, the access on the field. And um, when you're in an NGO like MSF, who has to manage millions of things at the same time, you have to be very careful on how you communicate things. Not that you're not saying what you have to say, but you have to say it in the right way so that you can reach all the audiences. And that's why we have communications departments, advocacy departments, so that to make sure that it's not only the people on the field. Because on the other part of the country, you might have another mission there. So you will risk what? Well, Christina, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for hosting us, being with us. When you're outside this situation, reading about the refugees hearing about the crisis. It's like a story far, far away. And the narrative is that the refugees are takers. And it's true in some ways. They leave with nothing and they arrive with nothing. And in some cases, they're treated like criminals. But people like Christina and Doctors Without Borders refuse to pigeonhole refugees as takers. They spend months side by side with the women and children who have given up everything to have a chance at giving their children a life that isn't brutalized by war. These refugee families aren't takers, they're survivors. And when they're given a chance, many of these survivors have so much to give back. Even under the worst conditions, women still manage to rise up. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. And Forced From Home will visit the Midwest and Southeast in 2018, so you can check it out for yourself.
That's our inflection point for today. Know a woman with a great rising up story? Let us know at inflectionpointradio.org. While you're there, I invite you to become a patron of Inflection Point. Inflection Point is brought to you in partnership with KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco and PRX. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, and NPR One. Give us a five-star review. We'd love that. Our story editor and content manager is Alora Weaver. Our engineer and producer is Eric Wayne. And I'm your host, Lauren Schiller. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.